please stand if you are able for a reading from God's holy word. Today's scripture reading is from 1 Samuel 20, verses 24 through 34. Please read with me the verses in bold. So David hid himself in the field, and when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat on his seat, as at other times, on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite, and Abner sat by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Yet Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought, something has happened to him. He is not clean. Surely he is not clean. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now, if I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Daniel, one of the pastors here. Thankful to be worshiping again this uh, Lord's Day. Um, yeah, life would be a lot easier, I think, if uh, everyone liked us. You know, wars wouldn't exist. There would be no political divisions. Yay. <laughs> There'd be no breakups ever. But no matter how hard we try, there will always be people who do not like us. So if this is true, then how can you tell if someone really doesn't like you? Well, here, I thought I'd, uh, I thought I'd give you some telltale signs that a person might dislike you. Uh, let me give you some pointers. For one, uh, they might let you know directly, I hate you. Yes, this is one of the signs. <laughs> if you can tell, uh, the information you hear me share is from extensive search, uh, research and, uh, and survey. Uh, this, is, this is what I've come up with. Uh, but there's lots of signs. Uh, you might be able to tell whether someone dislikes you by their body, body language. They avoid eye contact. They, they cross their arms when they speak to you. Uh, not all the time, but so that, that may be one of the telltale signs. Or you might be able to tell if someone dislikes you if they try to avoid you uh, as much as possible. 
They do whatever they can to have minimum contact with you and find alternate routes so they don't have to talk to you. Or perhaps you know when you never get invited to the social gathering. Uh, friends, I'm telling you these things uh, for your own good. Well, as we look at the text this morning, uh, David was enemy number one. He wasn't buddy-buddy with Saul. There was a real dislike, a hatred of, of David, so much so that he attempted to kill David, not just once, but five times. If you ever get a chance to read through uh, 1 Samuel chapters 18 through 19, you'll get a sense that Saul really dislikes David. And on five different occasions, just in, just in those few short chapters, you see, again, attempts on David's life over and over again. And you'll see also that uh, it'll happen continuously. Uh, again, even after this episode here in chapter 20, you'll see uh, attempts on David's life again and again. And so as David returns from battle, uh, Brad preached on this a couple weeks ago or last week, and again, word of what David had done uh, had spread throughout all of Israel, and the whole nation couldn't stop talking about this, uh, this unknown shepherd, this youth from Bethlehem who had defeated the Philistine giant, Goliath. David was the talk of the town, Saul was the king, but David was the true hero. And so they even wrote a song about David's great victory, a catchy little tune, Saul has slain his thousands. Dua, dua. I'm not going to sing like I did last time. <laughs> I embarrassed myself two weeks ago. And, then, and David has slain his tens of thousands. Bebop, shua, shua. <laughs> like I said, I promise, no more singing. Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. So as you could tell, this made Saul really angry, jealous, envious of all the attention David was getting, and perhaps nervous and anxious that his reign on the throne was coming to an end? Well, how can you tell if someone doesn't like you? Well, if you have a spear thrown at your head, it may be a telltale sign that someone doesn't like you. There's a story of two shopkeepers who were bitter rivals. Their stores were across the street from one another, and often they would spend their days sitting in the doorway, keeping track of who had more customers. Whenever one gained a customer, he would smile at the other in triumph. And this would go on every day. So one night, an angel appeared to one of the shopkeepers and said, God has sent me to teach you a lesson. He will give you anything you ask for. But I want you to know that whatever you get, your competitor across the street will receive twice as much. Ask what you wish. If you implore wealth, he will get twice as much. For long and happy life, it's yours, but he will live twice as long. You can become famous, your children can, become, uh, can be uh, famous, whatever you desire, but whatever you request, he will reap twice as much. The man frowned, thought for a moment, and said, all right, my request is this, that you would strike me blind in one eye.
You know, it burned David's, uh, it burned Saul's heart so deeply. Saul had killed his thousands, and yet this little song, this catchy tune, burned Saul inside. The Bible says that Saul was very angry, and this refrain outraged him. They credited David with tens of thousands, but me with only thousands. And, and he says, what more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye of David. And again, the ESV says, and Saul eyed David from that day on. Again, the same uh, idea of, of envy. David, the envy of, of Saul's heart. And from that day on, Saul was on a mission to kill David. There's jealousy, there's suspicion, there's paranoia, there's anger, there's, there's fear, and certainly there's, there's envy. This morning, we land in the middle of a story. It's almost like we tune in in the middle of a TV show. In the middle of an episode, we walk in, sometimes late to a movie, and try to piece all the parts of the movie together to see what's happening. And again, we, we find ourselves in 1 Samuel chapter 20 where, where there are some, some people sitting around a table. As we open up to 1 Samuel chapter 20, we're watching a table scene. It's a, a usual scene at mealtime during a religious festival. The king takes his rightful seat at the head of the table with a, a wall behind him. That place of honor furthest from the door. And on one side of him is Jonathan, his son, the rightful heir to the throne. And then the other is Abner. I'm not sure if you remember him or not, but there's Abner, who is the king's cousin and the commander of Saul's army. And then there's another place at the table that is conspicuously empty, but no one talks about it. There's an awkward silence in the room, and his name is never mentioned but there's an empty seat. And so Saul reasons to himself that David has somehow become unclean, that he cannot take part in the meal before he cleanses himself again ceremonially, cleanses himself. Again, that would prevent his presence at the table that evening. But you and I, as we read through this section, know that this is not it. This is not the reason why David is not there. There is another reason for his unexcused absence. David and, and Jonathan have talked about this before. They have this, this plan in place. What Jonathan will say to his father when, when his father asks, where is David, the son of, of Jesse? There's this neat little dialogue going back and forth between Saul and Jonathan. Again, Saul, the father, the king of Israel, and Jonathan, his, his son, the rightful heir to the throne. Saul asks a question in verse 27, where's David? And again, he says, the son of Jesse. Again, a, a demeaning, like, where's this lowly shepherd? Jonathan responds to a plan that has been previously worked out, went to go to see his brothers, to sacrifice there, and to celebrate the, the new moon festival with his family. And there's some anger. There's anger from Saul. There's name-calling of Jonathan. And at this time, it's Jonathan's turn to ask a question in verse, 30, verse 32. Why should David be put to death? What has he done? And Saul's response, he throws a spear. And it's so strange. There always seems to be a spear right next to him. 
And then Jonathan's anger, and he storms out of that room. So for a second night in a row, David is missing. His seat is visibly empty. The previous night, Saul had said nothing, but today Saul cannot be silent. So he asked Jonathan of David's whereabouts. Again, this is a sad chapter, I think, when you read through it in the lives of Saul and Jonathan and David, and it becomes abundantly clear that Saul is intent on killing David, and he will go to extreme measures if he must, that he will even kill his own son if he gets in the way of Saul's attempts. And perhaps this is that night to do it. So Jonathan gives Saul the excuse he and David had rehearsed. David asks for permission to celebrate with his family in Bethlehem. Jonathan grants it. No big deal. But to Saul, it was a big problem. He goes into a fit of rage. His anger focuses on his son. Saul concludes that this is all Jonathan's fault. He calls his son a nasty, offensive name the one who was the heir to the throne. And because of his allegiance and love for David, Saul believed Jonathan was throwing all of this away. Saul's reasons are self-serving, as you may have guessed, and not at all godly. Saul actually avoids the fact that God uh, had indicated through Samuel that David would be the next king of Israel. He sets aside the fact that Samuel had anointed David as Israel's next king. And so, to kill David would be to kill God's anointed. It's interesting. Now, David, as you will see in the, in the subsequent chapters, David would not do this to Saul, but certainly Saul had no problem doing it to David. Jonathan presses his father and thinks, of, uh, and thinks in terms of biblical justice. Why should David be put to death? What has he done? Just what sin has David committed to be executed? What sin of David deserves a death penalty? If there is no justification for David's murder, then in fact, it would be Saul who would be sinning against God, not David. And so you can imagine, again, Saul is fuming in anger. He picks up his spear and hurls it at his own son, Jonathan. What in the world? What a crazy lunatic. Saul is out of his mind. Ever see someone get mad like that before? I had some funny stories to share about people I know who, got, who's gotten, who have gotten angry. Uh, it's funny because it's not you. Um, <laughs> I see my fair share of upset people where their emotions get the best of them. Uh, my roommate in college, and I won't share, uh, who of my roommates, and not that you can track them, <laughs> but uh, something or someone lights a fuse and they explode. Ever see people get angry? Really angry? My own parents? Couples I have counseled at my, in my office who shout over each other? You know, I've come across a lot of angry people I thought I'd share some funny stories about these angry encounters that I've had. But every time I read this passage, I, I cannot help but look in the mirror and say, oh my gosh, that's me. You know, when I say, have you ever experienced such madness and such ludicrousy, you know, where they're out of their mind and they explode, 
You know, my, my kids can probably tell you, I've, I've been there. I, so furious. You know, share some funny stories about other people, and yet I realize uh, that sometimes when I look in the mirror, it's, it's me. And what's funny is that it's no, not so funny when it's about you. And then I realized when we read through these sections, I mean, it's easy for us to look at Saul and, and see him as the other, like that guy who got mad, that guy who blew his top, you know, that, that, that gal or that woman who, who just got angry over nothing. You know, I mean, it's so strange. We live in a world where even the littlest things seem to tick us off. You know, it's so funny when we read through and scroll through the pages of of our Facebook feeds. It's just, I mean, it's, it's not very far until you, you see an argument that goes back and forth and, and name-calling and a belittling of the other. You know, it's easy for us to look at Saul and, and think of him as that guy. Yes, I know him. He lives in my neighborhood. But whenever we read through Scripture uh, passages like this, do we ever look at those those characters in the, in the scriptures, in the Bible, and say, that's me. When we direct our questions from, what is wrong with the world? Because I know I have said that once or twice before. When we direct our questions from, what is wrong with the world, to what's wrong with us? What's wrong with me? And when we read through such sections like this, it's, it's not hard if we really get introspective and we look at our own tendencies and our, and our habits. It's easy for us to see that I am Saul and Saul is me. What drives a person to be so enraged, so furious? Jealousy? Fear, greed, pride, envy. The text tells us that Saul envied David. His, his eye was on David. Saul couldn't keep his eyes off of David. Now he has to watch his every move. Now he is consumed with but one passion to rid the world of this young shepherd. What is envy? Someone describes envy this way. The anger you feel when someone gets was someone else gets something you wanted for yourself. The anger you feel when someone else gets something you wanted for yourself. And both are at work in Saul's life, fear and anger, anger and fear, working together, feeding one another, eating away at any semblance of uh, mental stability. You know, it's easy to spot the outright and obvious and, and the blatant of sins that we commit on one another. But it's much more difficult to identify or even admit the ones that lead us to these or more heinous sins. And for Saul, his sins were evident in his actions, his angry outbursts, his indignation with insubordination, his attempts to rid any persons who would become a threat to the throne. What drives a person to be so angry? It's interesting that Jesus addresses two particular issues in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5. 
He addresses the sin of adultery. He addresses the sin of murder, both part of the Ten Commandments found in the book of Exodus. In verse 20, Jesus says something very interesting that catches our attention. He says, for I that surpass all the others. We know that there were none who were more righteous than the Pharisees and the scribes. They did everything right. They were law keepers. They were law abiders. They lived by the book. We're talking about external righteousness. There were none who exceeded them. However, Jesus shows us that it's not merely the external appearances. The scribes and Pharisees were great at that. They were content with superficial approaches to obedience. A wonderfully righteous facade without care developed uh, inward character and holiness. So what was Jesus talking about? He was talking about righteousness that results results from a relationship with God. Not a means of a right relationship with God, but as a result, a character transformed by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so again here, there is a correlation between righteousness and relationships. And these are, these are inevitably joined together. You see, it's right relationships that Christian character is evidenced. Relationships test our righteousness. They are the proving ground for kingdom citizens. Have you ever think about that? Ever think through the... the uh, the fruits of the Spirit, and ever do that in context of by yourself, right? Do you ever think, uh, you know, yes, I am self-controlled. Yes, I am humble. Yes, I am loving. I am peaceful and gentle, you know, and we go through the fruits of the Spirit, but yes, in comparison to ourselves when we are alone, those are easy to, to overcome. But the proving grounds, Jesus says, the proving grounds of our righteousness is our relationship, the way we Walk with one another. I mean, think about when your patience is most tested. Or think about when you're most prideful. Or you're the most jealous or envious. We, we do that in context of relationships with other, other people. And again, Jesus says, again, the, the relationship and, and, and righteousness are extremely tied, inextricably tied together. Again, where we see Christian character come out. The scribes and Pharisees, as long as the outside of the, lo- uh, of the cup looked clean, they were good. That was sufficient for them. And you see the teachers who were content with mere external conformity to the certain moral commands without radical tr- transformation of the inward life knows nothing of kingdom citizenship. And so when Jesus begins with the most basic command, do not murder, the early religious leaders thought this of only clear-cut homicide. But Jesus Jesus shows that it means much more. A dealing with our anger, which is the root of murder. You see, at the heart of this section is Jesus' exposure of the common misunderstanding and the misinterpretation of the Old Testament. The Pharisees and scribes had no qualms with external compliance to the law. They were big on doing this themselves, but this is not the intent of the law, simply to tidy up a person's external appearances. So again, what Jesus does, which I think is key in un- to understanding this text here, is that Jesus moves from the law and the Pharisees to the heart. In essence, it's a question of love. Not am I a keeper of the law, but am I a person who loves? Behind the Sin of murder and adultery is the question of, do I truly love people? 
Jesus is more concerned, not with our actions, but with our intentions, you see, because the intentions reveal who we are. Envy, jealousy, suspicion, fear, greed, pride. My friends, I will tell you, these are sins that no one really likes to fess up. These are sins that no one likes to confess. There are many warnings about envy in the Bible. There is no greater example of that in the life of King Saul, of what happens when envy takes over. It's a sin that makes us believe the worst about other people. Envy causes us to doubt the motives of those who are kind to us and to attack those who succeed instead of us. It's a cancer of the soul that destroys our inability to see the way God created them. Envy is unhappiness at the success of others and pleasure at the suffering of others. When we envy, we're sad. When others are glad, and sometimes when they're glad, we're sad. That's envy. And at this point, there's no longer any doubt in Jonathan's mind that there are two empty places at the table, David and Jonathan. Jonathan is deeply grieved. His grief, you will note, is not due to the humiliation by his father that he has heaped on him at the dinner table, but due to his father's dishonoring of David. David has been right all along, and Saul does intend to kill him. And he will also kill anyone who tries to stop him from doing so. Saul tried to kill David because he was, he was overcome with jealousy and envy. The jealousy made him fearful, and envy made him angry, and together they consumed his soul until his life was filled with one goal, to get rid of David. So you can understand, as, as Jonathan sees this play out, Jonathan leaves that table grieved. Envy is a byproduct of pride, thinking of oneself, thinking about oneself better than another. Think of pride. One pastor, Tim Keller, says, there is no fault which we are more unconscious of ourselves. And the more we have it, the more we dislike it in others. He continues, pride leads to every other vice. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next person. We say that, per that people are proud of being rich. We say that people are proud of being, being clever or good-looking. But in actuality, they are not. They are proud of being richer. They are proud of being cleverer or better-looking than others. The sin of pride is far more subtle and deadly. Pride is the sin under other sins that many people don't see. It's the desire to be your own Savior and your own Lord Pride can be as much the reason for keeping God's law as it can be for violating it. Until we stop looking only at sins and begin looking at our sin, pride and envy and self-centeredness and self-righteousness, we will never see our need for a Savior. Humility or the virtue that is the opposite of, of the sin of pride and prevents envy from taking root in our life. Jonathan rose, it says in verse 34, rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. I mentioned two weeks ago that when we read through portions of Scripture, I think every time you read through it, we ask the question, 
What does this say? What does this show us about the heart of God? David is not the hero in this story, nor is Jonathan. Saul, I'm sure, has every right to be, to be angry. But this really is a story about the heart of God. And what God does sometimes in Scripture is He uses different characters as a, as a type. These are characters that we see in Scripture that, that have a way of pointing us to Christ. They have a way of telling us, again, the heart of God. And Jonathan is that. He stands up. Again, as I mentioned before, the, the, the definition of en- envy is, again, um, it is, it is, envy is, the, is an unhappiness at the success of others. It's pleasure at the suffering of others. That's envy. And here Jonathan is the exact opposite. He exemplifies great humility. He exemplifies great sacrifice. He is grieved when David is grieved. And Jonathan is that kind of type that we see in the Old Testament that points us to Christ. Because surely as we read the New Testament and we see Christ coming to us, we see that Christ was the most humble person who ever lived. And Paul would describe it in Philippians 2 that he humbled himself even to the point of death, even death on a cross. And Jesus commands in John chapter 13, love one another. And he says, as I have loved you. You're going to hear a great sermon. I think listen to last week's. I think just so, I thought it was so good, the, 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 uh, the, the tension of, of power and, and sex. And I just, I, I love the, the looking at David and Jonathan's life and, and looking at this, this great companionship, this great friendship that formed. And again, here Jesus says, greater love has no one than this that he laid down his life for his friends. Jesus was the ultimate friend, the one who laid down his life and the one who sacrificed his very soul that others might live. And Jonathan is that type that we see in the Old Testament. There's a beautiful language that we see over and over again. Again, it's used one time in this whole section. It's the word covenant. David covenanted with Jonathan. And the same word that God uses with us, his people, when, when God covenants with us, when God makes promises to us, he keeps them. He keeps that relationship. No matter what we do, no matter how we do it to displease God, God cannot break his covenant because he cannot be unfaithful to himself. Himself. 